I'm Heidi Harris. This is the Heidi Harris Show podcast. I do these a couple of times a week. You can subscribe anywhere you get podcasts. You can also find them at HeidiHarris.com archived. Uh, recently, Frank Collada passed away. He was a hitman for the mob. He worked for Tony Spilatro. Some of his murders were featured in the movie Casino. He actually was in the movie Casino, kind of uh, portraying himself as a killer. And a fascinating guy. I got to know him for many years. And uh, I know there are people who have differing opinions about him. Oh, he was a murderer. He was this. He was that. Well, he was repentant. And unfortunately, at one point, the mob was going to go after him and kill him. And so he decided to uh, turn on the mob. And, of course, that got them upset, including our former mayor, Oscar Goodman. Interesting character. I was glad to know him. And he had some great stories. And before anybody gets self-righteous, oh, you're talking to mobsters. I've talked to mobsters, hookers, politicians. And if you've ever watched a mob movie, you're just as guilty. You're fascinated by them. Had a chance to talk to him many times over the years. Uh, here's a conversation I had with him. I believe it was 2009. This was the first conversation. And at the tail end of this podcast, you will hear him talking about car bombs and Harry Reid, who about uh, 10 years ago or so claimed that the mob had gone after him in a car bomb attempt, which was not true at all. And I was really the only person in the media who called him out on it. They didn't like it. There were about 11 different articles written nationally about me calling Harry Reid out. But, hey, listen, I asked the guy who would have put the car bomb in Harry's car if they targeted him. That's coming up at the end of this podcast. So here's an archived interview of my chat with Frank Collada about 2009. Frank Collada, welcome to The Heidi Harris Show. Thanks for having me. One of the things I found most interesting about your biography, and I'd certainly heard your name growing up in this town many times, uh, is that people who are criminals have something in common that I don't understand. I guess you'd call it the criminal mentality. What it is is that normal life isn't good enough for you from the standpoint of just going and doing a nine-to-five job. Because robbing things and planning crimes, that's not easy work. There's a lot of planning involved. you got to get other people. you got to coordinate. So it's not that you're lazy. It's just that you don't want to follow the normal rules of society, right? That's absolutely correct. So where's that come from? Ah, you just grow up into it, and you know where you're born at, the neighborhood you're from, and and uh, you like you make more money most naturally. And there is a lot of time involved in planning a robbery. It's not just going out there and robbing. You have to plan the score, and you're not going to steal for pennies. Although you do when you first start out, you know. But as you get older, you progress. You want larger amounts. So what attracted you? Now, I know that you weren't initially, you didn't want to be in the mob initially. That wasn't something you were interested in getting because you didn't want people telling you what to do. So it's kind of the same mental attitude from your little kid when you were a problem in school. And then you got a little bit older. You didn't want teachers telling you what to do. Didn't want your parents telling you what to do. Didn't, of course, your dad died when you were eight, right? That's correct. Yeah. And your dad was killed in a police chase. Yes, he was. And he was doing what at the time that he was killed? He had some hot stuff in the car. And he couldn't take the stop by the police, or he would have got arrested. So he took off, you know, and uh, he ran into a bus. It had to be devastating for your family. Uh, at the time, I was quite young, and I thought that he was still going to come home until about three days later when they assured me that he would no longer come home. And it was rough. Now, being so young, did you understand what your father was involved in as far as criminal activity? No, I didn't. I know he, I knew he had a violent temper from things that he'd done around the house and to people I seen him break a few guys' heads. But I didn't know he was a criminal, a crook. You know, I knew we had the best of furniture and everything until uh, he died. And then I started hearing stuff from relatives and his friends 
I thought I think that they thought by telling me this stuff that it would keep me away from living the life or growing up into the life he led. You know, mm-hmm. let, let, this, let this be a lesson, and it really didn't work out that way. No, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, I idolized him so much that this is the life I wanted. Interesting. Do you have a violent temper? I uh, probably still do, but I've learned how to control it. Because I was reading your biography, some of the people you hung out with were just maniacs. I mean, they homicidal maniacs. They'd kill you as soon as look at you. And I never got that impression from you. There were people you murdered, but you did it for a specific reason. It wasn't as if you were just killing people left and right, beating them over the head with a wine bottle and a bar fight, that kind of thing. No, I wasn't a mad dog. I knew, you know, a lot of guys that worked for me or were associated with me were mad dogs. They just loved to kill uh, I, uh, had a violent temper if you pushed me too far, but I learned, I really knew how to control it. Yeah. Now, so when, so when you first got involved with criminal activity, let's talk, let's talk about Tony's Bellatro because you guys wound up here in Vegas. Eventually you and Tony grew up together. Absolutely. From the time you're what, eight, nine, ten years old? Uh, you know, I children? think we were about 12 years old when we first met or maybe a little younger. We were sh- shining shoes. You know, with the shoe bag. You got to tell the story about the about the argument on the street between the two of you. That's yeah, a great story. He's on one side of the street. I'm on the other. He looks at me. I looked at him. It didn't bother me that he was shining shoes there, but it bothered him. So he said, "Hey, come over here." So I met him in the middle of the street, and he attempted to grab my collar, and I grabbed his collar. He says, "You're in my territory," and I looked up and I said, "I don't see your name on a street sign," and he said. Uh, well, if you're here tomorrow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick your ass. And I said, that ain't going to happen. I'll be here tomorrow. So I did show up the following day and the day after for about a week. I knew he wasn't avoiding me. I just figured we weren't hit it, bumping into each other. Then when we finally met, he told me, he asked me my last name, and I told him. And he said, oh, my father and your father were good friends. Your father did my father a great favor. I spoke to my father about you. You had upsetted me, he said. <laughs> and uh, I guess we could be friends, and we became friends. So from 12 years old, you and uh, Tony the Ant were for How did he get his nickname? I've heard varying reports on that. Uh, that was stupid. Uh, the FBI, this Romer guy, give him that name. He's a retired agent that died. He wrote a book. Anyway, he come up with this name. It was a wiretap, and this guy, Mike uh, Breslow, was referred to him on the phone to Tony. He said, listen, Ant, I want short for Anthony. Right. And uh, they heard it on the thing, assumed it was a nickname. Tony would never allow you to call him the Ant. He would, oh, God. Just like Bugsy Siegel hated that name. Oh, sure. That's stupid names. We don't like nicknames. Oh, you don't? Because you hear about a lot of mobsters who have nicknames. You don't, people don't want to be called a nickname. It's just something they pick up somewhere along the way, like a street name. They behind their back. <laughs> okay. I see. I didn't know. I knew that Bugsy Siegel hated that nickname, but yeah. I didn't realize that all mobsters don't call me, you know, Fat, fat Herbie or whatever. They don't want to hear it. Joe Lombardo, they used to call him the clown. Mm-hmm. You ain't going to call him the clown to his face. Yeah, I wondered about that when I saw I thought, hmm, how did he get that nickname? We're speaking with Frank Collada. Should I call you a retired mobster? Is that the correct term? Because you're, you're not mobbing anymore, right? That's correct. I am retired. <laughs> not reformed, just retired. <laughs> well, I'm reformed. <laughs> Something like that. So, so you come out to Vegas, and uh, initially, you know, you knew Tony was here, and he was doing a lot of things. You didn't really want to work with him because you didn't want the mob telling you what to do. Well, I came, I resisted uh, him from coming out here. He needed my help. And uh, I had a lounge, a disco, and finally things went bad there. And I said, you know what? And they were whacking a lot of guys back there, killing a lot of guys. So I figured, what the hell, I might as well go out there and work for him. 
So uh, I took him up on, uh, you know, him asking me to come out. And I, I actually watched his back, you know, so nobody would whack him or try to muscle him. <laughs> we're speaking with retired mobster Frank Collado. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, you're going to tell me the story about the guy who had his head in a vice. That's a true story. That's absolutely. And we're going to chat about that when we come back. Danny Griffin is here, who's written the book with Frank Collado, the biography. Lots to chat about. Yes, indeed, he do. I'm Heidi Harris. Hey, baby, let's go to Vegas. Kiss the same on the life without mobsters. It wouldn't. I mean, there just wouldn't be. Nobody'd care. It'd be a little dust hole in the desert. Joining me in studio, Frank Collada, retired mobster, Denny Griffin, author, retired police officer, and prolific author, written several books. The latest is uh, Collada, The Life of a Chicago Criminal, Las Vegas Mobster and Government Witness. Now, before we went to break, we were talking about the uh, scene portrayed in Casino. You were portrayed in Casino accurately, you would say? Uh, not really accurately. Uh, they changed things around to glorify things, you know. Yeah. I played more of a serious role in real life than in Casino. I wasn't no flunky. Like they, I figured, and I feel they portrayed oh, Frank Vincent. Because they were trying to focus on Spilatro, mainly well, yeah, in the movie more so. Focus on the movie star himself mm-hmm. to make him look like the big shot. I see. And uh, even like left... Uh, Lefty Day, you know, De Niro played his yeah. part. They made Lefty into a mountain of a man. He was, wasn't all of that. Well, they made his show look good, even. And we, yeah. we, I remember his TV show, so we won't go there. Uh, let's talk about the guy in the vice. In Casino, there's a scene where they show a man who's got a vice put to his head. They're trying to get him to talk. That actually happened. Talk about that. From what I was told by the one of the guys that put his head in the vice, they put his head in the opposite way. They jammed it in the vice. Because they were beating him up, and he wouldn't tell who was with him when uh, he they killed three people. There were two. They, those were called the M&M murders. Right. There was Billy McCarthy and James Moralia, the two guys that were involved in and the killing. I was supposed to go there on the, on, the, on the killings of the two brothers, but that night I was with a young lady, and, and I had the guns, you know. I can't do they, a killing tonight. I'm on a date. Well, I said, you want me to go? And he said, no, nah, just stay there with them. Stay there with your chick. Yeah. So they get Moralia in the in the vice. That's the one they caught first. No, they got Jimmy 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 McCar- okay. uh, McCarthy, Billy McCarthy. Okay. What they did was after they give him a good beating, and they're not use ice picks on his uh, on, on his, his parts. Yeah. Huh? yeah. No, and then they jammed his head forward into the vice instead of laying him on the table. That's Marty Scorsese's idea of, you know, theatrics. It looks better to get the camera on top, right, if you right, do it that way. exactly. Okay. So they jammed his head in, and I told him that when they squeezed, you know, tightened it up, his eyeballs popped out. And uh, Tony said it was disgusting. He said, but he gave us Jimmy's name. After the eyeball popped out, After he gave the up the name, but not till out. the eyeball. Not till the eyeball. Keep an eye out for me. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's you know, we're laughing about it, but this is. But then again, this guy, this guy was was a murderer who was yeah. in the vice. So it's not like he was a Boy Scout. That's absolutely right. He was a killer, and that weren't the only two or three people he killed. He's killed others. Right. So he got the vice, and then you guys finished him off, or the other guys finished him off. Him and his buddy, who he finally gave up when his eye popped out. Uh, yeah, they got him later. But they cut his throat. They did that in the movie after his eyes come out. Yeah. Now, there's a there's a scene in Casino where a man is being chased around his house because he's just not dying in a cooperative fashion. <laughs> and uh, you were at—that's a true story. You were actually the murderer, and you reenacted it for the movie. 
Well, I did, but they changed things around in the movie. Again, it's always better when they change things around. Uh, I didn't. I chased him f- maybe through two rooms after I shot him in the head, probably about ten times. Let's back this up because this happened right over here in Rawhide, kind of east of Eastern. That's correct. That's where the house was. Right. And uh, you were sent to kill him. We're speaking, by the way. We're, you just joined us. We're speaking with Frank Collada, retired mobster. You were sent to kill him. Why? I was ordered to kill him because. He was testifying in front of a federal grand jury in Washington, D.C., about Tony Splacho and me. And Tony ordered me to kill him. And when I took a little time, Tony Splacho says, if you don't do it right now, I'm going to do it. And I said, I'm going to do it. I just need a little bit more time. i got to set it up. And he told me who to bring with me and the killing. And uh, that's how it all started. So you go to the guy's house. Now, he, you had, but you had uh, met him out for cocktails a couple of times prior to because you wanted to kind of get in his good graces so he'd let you in the house. Yeah, he was a little scared of us. Oh, gee, I wonder why. Point. Well, he knew he'd done something wrong. Don't let Frank Collada in. Rule number one. <laughs> so he, uh, I had to make friends with him. Tony said, make him like you. He said, I'll get him over here and we'll make him like you. He said, you know, we got to make him like you. And I said, all right. So I got him and I made him like me again. So when I called him on the phone the night I was going to kill him, I told him, uh, I can't talk on the phone. Are you home alone? And he says, yeah. And I said, I'll be right there. He's married to a cocktail waitress who was working that night, right? Exactly, at at the Aladdin. So uh, we went over there, me and this other guy, in a work car, prepared with extra shells. I don't know why we brought extra bullets, but good thing we did. And we went over there, and I knocked on the front door, and he opened up the front door, I didn't have any gloves on. And yeah, because gloves would have been your first clue. If Frank Collada knocks on my door and he's got gloves on, that's not that's not good. You better run. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So purposely you didn't wear the gloves so as not to clue him into what was going to happen. That's true. So then as we start, I looked around and I said, I think I hear a noise. Is there somebody here? And he says, no, there's nobody here. My kids, my wife, they're all gone. Then I shot him in the back of the head two times real fast. And he turned around and looked at me. He said, what are you doing? But back up, because the bullets you used didn't work as well because they were the ones that were supposed to be quiet. Is that the, was that well, the reason? They were half loads okay, and 22s, and that's ridiculous, but that's what I was told to use. Why was that? To, to keep the noise would, down? He thought it would keep the noise down, but it was just as loud, if not louder. It sounded like bombs were exploding. Well, especially loud when you shoot someone and they don't die. Then it gets even more loud. Then it gets really loud. Yeah, okay, so you put two bullets in the back of his head. He doesn't die, right? He turns around, what are you doing? Well, gee, that's a dumb question, but he asked you that. Yeah, he said, what are you doing? And I and then he took, takes off. And I chased him, and I caught him just as he got to the kitchen where the garage door is. And he hit the button with his hand, and I knocked his hand down, and he crumbled to the floor because I guess it was starting to feel the shock of the bullets in his head. And then I let the rest of them go in his head, and he still was alive. And he yelled, his wife's going to know I was there because she knew I was coming over. So that didn't bother me. So I just grabbed a cord and I tried to wrap it around his neck and that broke. Then I was trying to grab a knife because I had to kill this guy. Now it's, it's getting, too late. This is getting messy now. You know, yeah, he can identify. Late. You better finish what can him I off. Do? I can't leave him there alive. Right. You know, so uh, I couldn't find a knife. And then, uh, <coughs> excuse me, my partner came in. And, uh, I don't know what possessed him to bring the other bullets in, but he came in with extra bullets. So I reloaded and put a pillow over his head, the front of his face, and the back, and emptied it out. What's it like to kill somebody? Oh, sorry, I'm going to cough. Uh, 
at the time you justify it, it's all justified. You think you're doing the right thing. Because it's business and he's going to hurt your friend. Yeah, he's he's a no good guy. You know, he's going to destroy us all. And that's a rule that we had. Look at this guy was kind of, as described in the book, this guy was kind of a weasel, hanger on, wannabe mobster, right? He just was kind of trying to be important. He was a great user of people. Uh, a sleaze bag. He'd kind an old lady out of money if he had the opportunity. He didn't care who he was kind for money. I don't think he's ever put a gun in his hand or used a crowbar on the door. It was all strictly kind. And I didn't like this guy at all. He was a weasel. So it didn't bother you too much to kill him because you figured he got what he deserved. I had no feelings of remorse about killing him at all. Now, what about the wife? Now, she did know you were there. The cops come. He's floating. In, you finally threw him in the pool. He's floating in the pool. She comes home. She knows you came over. Did she know right away you did it? I mean, she wasn't stupid. She No, she knew right away. But she's a very lucky woman because I wanted to bring Larry Newman with me. And we used to refer to Larry Newman as Lurch. Yeah, we'll talk about Larry Newman, too, because he's uh, he was one of the wackos who was just insane. as far He's as, insane. And we'll talk about him in a second. But So you, you wanted to bring Larry Newman with you initially. Yeah, and he wanted to kill her. He'll kill her. His mind was to kill her. Mm-hmm. Or anyone. <laughs> no, mostly her. He hated her. I guess they had run-ins together, him mm. and her and that Jerry, and he just wanted to kill them bad. He wanted to cut them up in pieces. And... Uh, Tony didn't want him to go. He said, keep that guy away. Get somebody else. So you purposely went knowing that she wasn't there. Now, when she comes home, she finds her husband dead. Does she call the police? Frank Collada did this. and Or did she just get on a plane and leave town? You know, I don't know. From what I heard, that she just called the police. Uh-huh. And uh, she never, I don't think, she, I don't know if she told him that I did it. <clears throat> I think the FBI and the local police, the Metro, Sort of put two and two together and figured I did it. Well, they had to know somebody did it because if you're if you're kind of a shadowy figure in the mob and you're messing with the mob, messing with the wrong guy, then you know sometimes you're gonna you're gonna wind up uh, you're gonna wind up dead, and that's not a good thing. So she, that nothing ever happened with that. You were never prosecuted for that. Talk a little bit about uh, Larry Newman because he was. And by the way, we're speaking with Frank Collada, retired mobster. Talk about uh, Larry Newman. He was a homicidal maniac. But interestingly, he, his father had left him a bunch of money. So here's a guy who could sit around the house, right, and not have to work. Yet he uh, chose to kill people because he enjoyed it. He, he had a uh, record previous to that. He went to uh, prison for killing three people. When he was younger, over $2.50. Oh, great. He killed uh, two brothers and a girl, a bartender or some I don't know, in some place many years ago. So that's how I met him in, in prison. And he was a genius. Actually, he was a genius. He had a hell of an IQ. And uh, he didn't need to steal. He didn't need to kill because his father left him a lot of money. But he uh, was bored, and he wanted to do exciting things. In his mind. More exciting to kill people than it is to, you know, be a oh, lawyer or something else. Didn't bother him at all to kill somebody. He enjoyed it. Does it bother you, even if it's strictly business? I mean, when you get home at night, do you see the guy's face? Do you get flashbacks? Do you feel any kind of guilt or remorse or anything like that? Uh, not right at first, but it did after a while. I thought about it, you know, and you picture his face and everything. And you know you can't bring that person back. Once you kill him, it's all over. They're dead. You can't bring it back. And sure, it's going to bother you. You know, it bothered me. Yeah, so because years later, but you, not you know. to the point where I was going to go and confess to it. Well, that wouldn't have served any purpose anyway. No. Really, at that point. Then I was looking for some lead. Yeah, if you told anybody about that, you would. They would have definitely. Somebody would have killed you. And that's basically what it comes down to: kill or be killed. When you're in the mob, right? Absolutely. Yeah, you know, once you're once you're in that world, there's no getting out cleanly. That's true.
Let's talk a little bit about some of the uh, the capers you were involved with here in Vegas. We talked about that murder uh, right here in town that's portrayed not completely accurately in Casino, but the vice thing. That's what sticks in people's mind, head vice. And then we talked about the one on Rawhide where the guy was chased through the house. Let's talk about some of the other things you were involved in and the hole in the wall gang and how it all kind of uh, you wound up getting arrested for that. Well, what uh, you know, all these houses out there, they start getting in the into the, the alarm system. And uh, we used to beat the alarms a lot of ways, different ways. and But then it got to be a hassle, you know, especially if you're doing a house in the daytime. So uh, I said, just punch holes in the wall. They're all made of plaster. Anyway, so we started punching holes in the wall to get in. And we actually knew where the jewelry was that we wanted or the cash because we'd get tips from the insurance people. Yeah, let's talk about that real quickly, because I was surprised when I read your book. No, I was I was educated. I did not know this, that if you have, let's say, a multi-million dollar coin collection or something that you get insurance for, you the insurance people in some cases would tip you guys off and say, hey, I know that person has it. Or you had plants at the various hotels who would say, so-and-so checked in, they left all this stuff in the safe deposit box or in their room or whatever. I was not aware that those were all these leaks in security. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, they all made money from, you know, giving us that information. Yeah, they get their percentage or we whatever. Give them 10, 20%, depending on the score and how good it was, you know, the tip. And uh, that's what we did. And the hotels, the insurance people, the, you know, the guy, they have to write separate contracts on insurances to upgrade it, you know, if they have a 10 carat diamond ring. Uh, the regular insurance will probably only insure up to maybe 5000 or something. So if they got an extended policy for two, three hundred thousand, we get that information and we know where it was stored in the house. And all the time they had safes, and we'd always get the safe out of the house. We just didn't go kick doors down for a TV. Yeah, you were in there for major, major right, things. That's correct. So let's talk about Bertha's, which which is a jewelry store now on East Sahara. But when I was a kid, my mom bought furniture at Bertha's. It was a very nice furniture and furniture store. I remembered it as only being a furniture store, but there was also jewelry. Captain Berthas. There was jewelry, a lot of antiques. And when I first came to this town, this uh, guy that from Chicago was living out there, and he said, this is a good scorer. So we went and looked at it, and he, and he said, I've been in and out of it. He says, it does have sound in there and motion detectors and so on. He said, how do you think we can make it if we ever want to make it? So I said, probably it would have to come through the roof or the wall, go right into the vault. So him and I had a falling out, and I had another crew, and I always thought about it, Bertha's, always thought about it. And I said, well, maybe one day, if things got real bad, too much heat, this could be the one that would pull us out of all these issues with money. Because I was spending three, 400000 a year on lawyers and fight these cases. I mean, money, you know, it was just Well, that gold. gets expensive, doesn't it? It costs very, of doing business, for heaven's sake. Very expensive. Wow. Then you had to live that high life, you expensive know. Expensive being a mobster. <laughs> so uh, that was the last score that put us all down. So talk about the uh, the plant. Now, there was a guy who was involved in your Bertha's uh, robbery, and you were suspicious of him from day one, and Tony Spalatro was not. That's correct. Tony, at the time... When we put the score together, this guy, Ernie DeVino, filled this uh, Sal Romano in on it. And I said, how could you do that without asking me? He said, well, he knows how to shut off alarms. I said, so do I. I said, we don't need this guy. I said, we're going to go through the, the roof. Why do we need him? Because you didn't like him anyway. You had you had met him several times before, and for some reason you just didn't trust him. 
Well, I met him. Uh, he, he was brought around by this guy, Pete Basil, and uh, Pete was a burglar. But what happened was some Chicago cops flew down, and they met me at my uh, restaurant. Two detectives whom I'd known all their, my life, and they told me, watch this guy, Sal Romano. We bust him at O'Hara, O'Hara Airport with a load of furs, and nothing's happened. The feds took the case from us. So uh, we think he's uh, working for the feds. And why would the cops come? Why would the Chicago cops come tell you a criminal about Sal Romano? Why would they give you the well, warning? You know, in Chicago, you grew up with these guys. They could be your next door neighbor, a guy you played with when you were kids, you know. So they have loyalties to you. So it's like cops and robbers. Nobody really gets hurt. You just chase each other around. Well, that basically? no, there's the cops that chase you around. I want to put a bullet in your head. Mm-hmm. But these guys were our friends, and they were detectives, and they worked for Bill Hanart, who wind up going to prison. And he was their boss, uh, a lieutenant, I think he was. Anyway, and he was working for the outfit. So they came down and told me, and I told Tony. And he said, ah, he says, how do you know for sure? I said, I'm telling you, that's what they said that this guy is bad. He said, well, just put the big guy on him when you do the score, meaning put Lurch on him. Let Lurch stay with him. The homicidal maniac. Yeah. He says, after the score, you whack him. That's all. But keep him. But you got to do it the 4th of July, like you said, because it's real noisy. And I said, all right. And then I seen the feds over around his house. I said, Tony, it's the weekend. He said, what's that mean? I said, they don't work on the weekend. I said, these guys are spying on us right now. Right? And he said, ah, you're, you're getting paranoid. I said, all right. And that's what happened. So Sal you guys got Romano caught. Sal Romano with the feds. So, yeah, you guys all got arrested, and you noticed that when you all wind up in jail, Sal Romano was noticeably absent from the cell. Yeah, he wasn't around. And he was gone. So you figured it out. So you uh, you get – now, you, what charges were brought against you, you and the whole oh, of the long A bunch game? of burglary charges, burglary, and possession of burglary tools, radios. The standard stuff they put on you, you know. Of course, I was looking as as an habitual criminal. I had about five, six cases going. And they couldn't get anything. You were getting continuances and things like that, yeah, dragging it out. Yeah, put off. And, uh, I, you know, there was coming. And I did get found guilty on the one uh, stolen furniture. So I had that pending. So I knew as soon as I got a bond, I wouldn't be able to get a bond if I got busted again. Yeah, they were looking for something for you. Right, and uh, they didn't want to give me a bond, but I wind up getting a bond and getting out. Even after the hole-in-the-wall thing? Yeah. Wow. Now, who was your attorney at the time? It wasn't Oscar Goodman. Because he, was, he Goodman was Tony's. Oscar was an advisor. Okay. He was an advisor for... Tony wanted me to have Oscar as an advisor to John Mammon. He didn't think John was capable of handling this... All these cases. Well, look at what he did for Sandy Murphy. Okay, never mind. <laughs> so I uh, took on Oscar, and of course, it cost me another ten thousand. And an advisor, uh, I like that. And Oscar was an advisor, but I don't. Uh, I told Tony, "What good is this guy going to do? He's just going to go prolong the inevitable. I'm going to go to the joint. That's what it amounts to." You know, he saw oh, he'll he'll take care of it. Don't worry, Oscar's good. He's good. Tony believed in him. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what changed and why you decided to talk to the feds about uh, the mob. And is there really a mob? Because Oscar Goodman used to say there wasn't, and now he says there is, and I'm completely confused. Now, what was the turning point for you, Frank, when you decided to go ahead and cooperate with the government and go against Tony the Ants Bellatro, whom you'd known since you were 12 years old? Well, just before I got found guilty and got locked up, 
Some guy was shot in the apartment right next to the apartment that we were taking so I could go to court. And uh, it was strange circumstances because I was with Tony two hours before that, and he knew where I was going. Then a guy gets shot. That's right. They shot right through the window or the door, right, well, of the house? They, I don't know. They caught him in the doorway, and it was right next to my door. Obviously, they thought it was you. That's what I felt. Uh, I didn't feel that at the time, but my uh, wife told me, don't you think that's for you? And I said, nah, you're just being paranoid. You know, she's, I'm telling you, I think it was for you. He's a wife of a mobster. I, is that paranoid to say that? I mean, you know, your wife had to go, you were married for many, many years. Your wife had to go, and you still are. Your wife had to go through a lot, obviously, being yeah. the wife of a mobster. And you, know, you can say a little, but you can't say too much, right? Well, you, you really don't say anything to them about what you're doing. Yeah. Of course, they assume that it's no good. They have to. You're never working. But you don't discuss it. But when the next door neighbor gets shot, you know, it's kind of a weird thing. So she just brought it up, you Mm -hmm. know. And uh, and then Tony calls me about an hour later, and I just left him. And I said, he says, I'm here. I was just trying to go to sleep. He said, well, come back. I need to talk to you again. Wait a minute. Did he sound surprised that you answered the phone? Yeah, he sounded a little, like, taken back. And uh, maybe he thought she was going to answer the phone. And anyway, I answered it, so I told her I'm going to go meet him. She's not, doesn't that sound strange to you? You just were there. Besides, I'm going back. So I went back. I met him at the, the My Place Lounge in the parking lot. That's over the Flamingo in Maryland, for those who don't know. Right? And I uh, told him what happened. And he said, no kidding. He acted like he was surprised. Yeah, what are the odds? Somebody shoots the guy next door to you. <laughs> so I let that go. I let it go. And the following day, I got found guilty, and they locked me up. And then uh, I was had a visit from Charlie Parson. He was in well, I, he was I guess he was in charge of the FBI at the time, and he uh, had my lawyer there with me, and he told me that uh, there was uh, a contract on him. Oh, really? Well, now what, would someone kill you in prison? Oh yeah, it could be done okay. easily. I mean, I'm certainly we hear about murders in prison, but I would figure that once you were locked up, they wouldn't bother with you. But you were saying the contract was out. He had he had information, so now you know you're going to get whacked while you're incarcerated. And I know it could happen in prison because I know the way prison is. I've been there. Right. It's probably easier to get you in prison. So uh, I start thinking, and I told him when I end the visit, I said, "Ah, you're full of baloney. You're just trying to get me to roll." And. Uh, he said, all right. He said, I'm here to just tell you this. You can do what you want to do. And he left. And then uh, a couple of days went by, and I started thinking about it. And, you know, and I said, you know what? This guy's tr- throwing me to the wolves over there because he didn't get the okay for me to whack a listener. You know, listener was the guy you killed uh, right here in Las Vegas. You had to chase around the house because Tony had told you initially, Tony Spilatro told you he had the okay to kill listener. And you found out later or started to suspect that indeed he didn't have the okay because you can't just kill somebody. You can't whack them until you get approval from Chicago. That's correct. And uh, I found out when I went back to Chicago that he did not get that approval. So why would why would know he know I kill listener to people back in Chicago? Oh, they did they just knew the listener had been killed. Yeah, they said what's going on out there? What do you got who's killing all these people? Okay. And I said what are you talking about? And they said well, who killed that last guy and threw him in a pool? So I have no idea. So they only ask you that because they had not called for the hit. That's when you realized Tony had lied to you. Right. So and why would that matter, though? You get arrested for the hole-in-the-wall thing. You get convicted of a lot of charges. You go to prison. Who would care at that point whether or not you killed listener without approval from the mob? Why would that matter? Why would that matter? Well, it shows right then and there that 
we are taking th- we become a threat to them. Okay, you're not you're not going with their authority right. anymore. So you're kind of renegades. We're renegades, and renegades are dangerous. You know, they're going to kill their own boss. They're going to do whatever to take over. So with that being said, I thought about it, and I said, I ain't got a chance in here or out there. This guy ain't doing shit for me now. I'm paying all the legal fees for everybody, you know. So jail didn't scare me. I've been there before. It's nothing. Right, but they should have been making some kind of effort on the outside to do some things for you, right? Once you That's got what That I was felt. kind of the honor code, as it were. That's what I felt. At least they carry your family. And that wasn't being done. So with that, I called Charlie Parsons up, and I told him to come down. I wanted to talk to him. Charlie he Parsons was, was with? With the FBI. He was probably there in three minutes. I'm sure. He's waiting. Oh, it seemed like he was waiting in the lobby. Yeah, so so now he because he's the guy who initially had told you that he had it uh, on good authority from Chicago that there was a hit on you, right? And I'm sure why he, why would he lie to you? I mean, I can see the benefit to him, but really, you're smart enough to find out the truth for yourself. Yeah, I'm sure he didn't lie to me. Like uh, you know, people say, well, he lied to you because he knew that you would roll, or he wanted to give you some reason to roll. They don't play them games. They got to back up, right? The FBI has to back up what they tell you. Well, plus, you're not stupid. You're you're smart enough to not believe the first guy who tells you. You're going to look into it. You're going to look at the totality of circumstances, and you see, hey, they're not taking care of me. There are a lot of things to point to what uh, Parsons is telling me as being the truth. Well, that's what I took into consideration, all of that. And uh, I just made my decision. This has to be done. And that's why I'm still alive today. I made a good decision. So they must have been uh, just amazed that you decided to roll and, uh, and well, cooperate Tony with the heard, government. When Tony heard that I rolled, I heard that he started laughing. He rolled out the boot and my place lounger's booth, sir. He said, oh, you're nuts. That's impossible. And he cra- was cracking up. And the guy said, no, my ex-brother-in-law. Well, he's dead, my brother-in-law. And uh, he said, no, he rolled. And Tony's... Started inquiring about it, and that's when he found out. Now, your brother-in-law, that was your, your wife's brother, obviously. That's correct. They don't go after family members? Because, you know, you know, they never went after your wife. I mean, you never, no. before you rolled, you hear a lot of, everybody's got kids. You know, Tony had his wife and his little son. And it's just pretty much not the honor code to go after family members? Well, yeah, that's some, some code that we had. We never went after family members. Uh, never. So they, I knew they weren't going to bother. If anything, they might have, <clears throat> they may have offered her, or they would have offered her money to testify against me, and uh, him, her brother, and my brother. You know. But they wouldn't have. They wouldn't have ever, ever hurt them. No, they'd never hurt them. They did approach my brother, and he wasn't going to go for that. And uh, he didn't go for it. They told him they'd give him enough money to fill up a house. He said, forget it. wasn't worth so it. I can't do it. So you testified. How long was the process of you testifying? Obviously, you had to talk to the feds at length. And, and they, and as you mentioned, when Parsons, the, the Fed, you know, didn't lie to you, they told you, don't you lie about one single thing, because if you do, you're not eligible for this. Well, they told me the first time they caught me in a lie, I wouldn't be eligible for anything, and they would try me. Uh, well, they couldn't try me for things I said because I hadn't been read my rights. But they would have all this information anyway, and then they would know how to dig into the matter more thoroughly, and then they would have me. So once you decide to, to, to roll, then you have to be absolutely honest with the feds at that there point. There was no turning back. So I was very, very honest. There's no reason to lie. 
you know, I would only hurt myself if I lied. Yeah, we're speaking with retired mobster Frank Collada. So how long was the process? How long did you talk to the feds? I mean, was it weeks of, of recorded testimony, things like that, before you guys actually went to trial? Because they it, had to get a lot of was, background from you. It was the feds. It was the Metro first. The Metro. They uh, talked to me for probably about a 30 days, and we were in and out of every motel in Las Vegas there. And by Lake Mead, they drove all over with me. Where you was know. your wife, by the way, when this yeah, was going they on? They had her somewhere else in a hotel or motel So they somewhere. immediately took her away. Right. Not out of the state. They kept her. We got to see each other a couple times. And uh, the kids didn't want to go into the program. But your kids were, what, teenagers by then, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they wanted to stay with their friends, uh, which one of them did, but the boy came along. Anyway... Uh, then the uh, Metro, after they got all the information they needed out of me, they turned me over to the feds. Was your wife happy you rolled? Because she had she to know was, what it was going to mean for her life. She wasn't happy. She wanted she wanted me to make sure I knew what I was doing because she told me this is going to take, you know, this is going to take place and it's going to be rough. And I told her, I, I'm telling you, make this decision. Do you want to stay with me? Because we've got a long road to go here. And she's, I'm going to stay with you. Yeah, because if she'd opted to just leave, they would not. The mob would not have gone after her. No, they wouldn't bother her. So, in another interview with Frank Collada, I asked him about car bombs and Lefty Rosenthal's bomb. How to actually do a car bomb? Because Frank had actually done car bombs that killed people. I also asked him about Harry Reid. Now, Harry Reid, a few years back, was running ads claiming he'd been targeted by the mob. At the time, I asked people I know who are in very high-ranking positions in town, who were here in 1981. Was it true that Harry Reid was ever targeted? They went, huh? What? Nobody remembered it. I was the only person in the media who called Harry Reid out for being the liar he was. He had no proof of anything. And so I asked the only person in Vegas who would have been in charge of targeting Harry Reid had the mob really been upset with him. I asked Frank Collada about this, and here's what he had to say. So what you're saying there, Frank, is that there's no way the mob was after Harry Reid. I mean, did they have anything against him at that time? No, we had nothing against him. We've, I, Tony never even talked about him. Splotch on yeah, him. We so never even talked about him. I mean, there was no need to talk about him. For the while I was there, I mean, uh, no, we had nothing against him. And this is when you were active. I mean, this Absolutely. this is the, 1981. You were in jail when this actually happened. But this all this time, that's all this supposedly was going on, you were active in the town. Tony was running the town from the mob perspective. If anybody had had a problem with, uh, with the Harry Reid, you'd have known about it. I certainly would have, and I would have probably been informed before 81 while I was out there. While I was active, I would have known then to go after him, and I would have known that there was a threat towards him after it happened, and it never happened. And you would have been, would you have been the person to carry out something against Harry Reid if necessary, if the mob had wanted him hurt? I was his guy. I was the only guy that would have been able to carry it out. And if you'd have done it, it would have been more than just a wire on the distributor on the whatever on the whatever? It would have been underneath the seat, and it would have been to the ignition. So is that what happened with Lefty's bomb when he turned the ignition? That's what triggered the bomb, Lefty Rosenthal's bomb? Yeah, it triggered the bomb. It triggered, uh, it, it was onto a hot wire, and it was underneath the car, underneath a plate. We would have never placed it underneath the car. We would have placed it underneath the seat. We would have got into the car, which is very easy. Any car is easy to open up. Place it underneath the seat. Sure to get him then. It's going to blow him through the roof. Who put uh, Lefty Rosenthal's bomb in? It's It wasn't us either. Yeah. If it was, Lefty would have been dead. 
Now, apparently, from what I understand about Lefty Rosenthal's car bomb, which everybody saw recreated in Casino, right. two things uh, kept him alive. One was he was in the habit of turning his car on with the door open, which at which point I would have changed careers, but okay. <laughs> and then there was a plate under the, underneath that particular year of car that the bomber apparently didn't know about that that uh, absorbed some of the pressure? Well, they had that underneath Tornados, to Oldsmobile Tornados, because it was front-wheel drive cars, and they had that plate underneath them. And the Cadillacs had them. I had several of them Cadillacs, so I know that it had them underneath there. And uh, it was more or less a safety feature than or something for gasoline. I don't know what it was. Something for mobsters yeah. who want to drive those cars. <laughs> Handy to have that extra plate under the seat in certain hazardous occupations. But we never really set any bombs underneath the seats. The one I, and I've done one, that we put them underneath the seat of the car, not not underneath the, the undercarriage of the car. Okay, so or in the engine part, we never did that. So you put the you would put the bomb if you were going to underneath the seat, and it would be triggered by the ignition and wired to what? Now tell me. Explain. It would be wired to the ignition, a hot wire. Uh-huh. So as soon as they turned it on, the hot wire would activate and it would set off the cap, the blasting cap that was in the dynamite, and would blow up the car. And who did you blow up with one of those? I blew up, we blew up some guy in a union in Chicago. He was uh, in the barber's union. We were ordered to do it. And you had to get rid of him. And it was effective, your particular Very method. effective. So those are just a few of the conversations I had with Frank Collada over the years. I know people have various opinions about a mobster. Why are you glorifying him? Well, if you've ever seen Casino or Goodfellas or any of those movies, Godfather, you're guilty too. You're fascinated by them. And by the way, Frank was not proud of the things he did in his later life. But, you know, he was making a living talking about them and writing about them. What else are you going to do at that point? So he made a lot of mistakes. He owned up to it. And uh, I enjoyed being a friend of his for many years. And we wish him, uh, hope you rest in peace. I, you know, don't know. Honestly, I don't know a lot about his spiritual state, but I certainly hope that he's made his peace with God. And I wish him, you know, a peaceful rest in eternity. I'm Heidi Harris. Until we meet again, remember to make every day count. And remember, you were created for a purpose. Here's Tony Scottwell. (laughs) 